Well, here we are at the start of a whole new year, exciting stuff. Uh, last year at this time, we began a series that we called First Love, and we took the Gospel of John, and we looked at just the first 12 chapters of that book, and those 12 chapters cover the overwhelming majority of Jesus' earthly life. Think of the fact that he was here for three years, uh, he ministered for three years, uh, those 12 chapters cover almost all of those three years. Uh, you might remember that Jesus worked a series of signs that culminated from smaller things, but not insignificant things, turning water into wine. That's not an insignificant or small thing really by itself. But comparatively to the resurrection of Lazarus, the signs culminate from big things to even bigger and even greater things. And as the signs culminate, the tension builds and people uh, are seeking to kill Jesus and to kill Lazarus. They didn't know what to do with him. They didn't know how to think about him. They didn't want to accept his message. And so they were trying to cancel him and kill him and, and, and take the stress away, if you will. So the signs that Jesus was working were astounding. They were otherworldly. And there was no plausible explanation that could really be offered for what he was saying and doing except for what Nicodemus observed. Nicodemus the Pharisee, he said it best, that no one could perform the signs that Jesus was doing unless God were with him. There is no other explanation uh, for, for what was going on than that. Uh, Jesus didn't just release this unrelenting barrage of signs John features like seven signs, but there was a lot that he was doing, far more than that. It wasn't just what he was doing. He said things that would have been considered blasphemous were they not true. And that's what you have to understand. A lot of us were maybe loosely familiar with the scriptures, loosely familiar with the New Testament, the gospels, these stories are familiar. Many of us haven't really studied them deeply. Uh, I might say many of you, just to kind of qualify that, because I, I, I've contemplated on them deeply, uh, just because that's my job, I guess, but, uh, but more than that. The Old Testament, even more so. The Old Testament is just laden with story and signs and, and all sorts of different things. The more you understand the Old Testament, the more riled up you get about Jesus, because you start to realize that Jesus is appropriating for himself just about every major story or designation for Yahweh in the Old Testament. He's appropriating it for himself. Who does that? What kind of a person would have the audacity to do that? So, for example, you think of the whole Jewish Old Testament sacrificial system. You know, they had the Passover. This, uh, in John 13, it happens on the Passover. And you think of all the millions of sacrifices that were offered to atone for the sins of Israel. Millions of sacrifices through generations. And Jesus has the audacity to consider himself the ultimate true Lamb of God that once and for all takes away the sins of the world. You see my point? Uh, how is God's relationship with Israel understood in the Old Testament? Well, one of the ways is that God is the bridegroom of Israel, the husband. 
And so here you have John the Baptist introducing Jesus as the bridegroom. And he says, it's my pleasure to introduce him. And, uh, and he's greater than me. Uh, a title reserved for God himself being appropriated by Jesus. I remember Abraham. And you remember Moses, and Moses said to, to God, how do I know your name? Who should I say you are when I go before Pharaoh? And, and God told Moses, uh, I am. Well, I am is Yahweh. That's the personal name of God in the Old Testament. The reason we don't hear Yahweh a lot is because it's not supposed to be spoken out of reverence. You know, the Jews would never say it verbally. But, uh, but Jesus says before Abraham, I am. I am Yahweh. I, I am uh, people, uh, you remember Jacob had the dream when, and he had the ladder and the, the angels were ascending and descending on the ladder. Jesus told people that they would see heaven open up, like Jacob did, and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you greater than Abraham? Are you greater than Moses? You really think you're Yahweh, do you see? Moses parted the sea. Pretty impressive. Uh, Jesus is one greater than Moses. He walked on the sea. Every one of these things that you see in John's gospel, it's a story, it's a happening, it seems random. But they all have this Old Testament kind of shadowing. And, and, and for us... The illusions might be lost on us because of our lack of knowledge of Scripture. But they weren't lost on the people that didn't know what to do with Jesus and thought it might be better to kill him than to deal with all of his metaphors and all of his teaching. Jesus saw himself as God tabernacling among his people. Remember Leviticus, uh, the elaborate instructions of how God wanted to dwell with his people, the 12 tribes of Israel, and build this tent and have the Holy of Holies and, and do these sacrifices and, and all these different things and have this tabernacle with these elements. And Jesus is God tabernacling among us, dwelling among us, abiding with us. He announced the temple, which was later established as more of a permanent dwelling for God's name than the tabernacle, which was a tent and people were mobile. But when they became God's people and they were in the promised land in Israel and Jerusalem, they built a temple. It's my father's house, Jesus says. <laughs> it's my father's house. And if you destroy it, it took you 40 years to build it or however long, I can build it back in three days. But he's really talking about his body, using the temple as a metaphor that you destroy me and God will raise me back up in three days. Uh, the works I am doing testify to the fact that the Father sent me. Joshua, remember him? The great conquest of Canaan and, and bringing people into the promised land. Jesus is the new kind of Joshua. And he's come uh, to lay conquest over sin and death itself and to deliver God's people into an eternal hope and dwelling. I, who appropriates these things for themselves, you see? Uh, this week I started flipping through, uh, just getting my mind back around, you know, everything we talked about in the first 12 chapters, or at least some of it. You'd probably need to lock up a guy like Jesus. I don't know what you would do with him. I am the light of the world. 
anyone who believes in me has eternal life, but the one who rejects me will not see life. In fact, God's wrath will remain on him. If you were to ask, I'll give you living water. What Moses gave the people water out of the rock, and it was water flowing forth from a rock in a desert. And Jesus saying, I can give you not just that kind of water, I can give you living water. I'm greater than Moses. Again, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, the son can give life to whoever he wants. Uh, Whoever hears my word and believes the one who sent me, quite a claim, has eternal life, will not come under judgment and has passed from death to life. I'm the bread of life. Okay, Moses, there is manna to nourish God's people, manna from heaven. Jesus is manna from heaven, greater than what even Moses gave. I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life. God wasn't just the bridegroom of Israel. God was the shepherd. And when you say good shepherd, good is loaded because there's no one good but God alone. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the God shepherd. Nobody can snatch those the Father has given me out of my hand. If you can't believe what I'm saying, believe the signs, the works. I'm the resurrection and the life. If ever people were sharply divided, it was over what to do with Jesus. What to do with somebody with the audacity to say what he said and to appropriate for himself things that belong to God alone. Someone who did what Jesus did and whose words proved true. Spoiler alert. They thought they could just kill Jesus and bury his body And that of Lazarus and and the blind man, remember him? I was blind, but now I can see. They knew he was blind. They'd seen him their whole life for 40 years, and now they knew that he could see, and they had no explanation for it. And you could kill the blind man and kill Lazarus and bury Jesus, but his words would come back to haunt them again and again. Destroy this body, and God will raise it up in three days. That's what they decide to do in the final days of Jesus' life. They decide... We need to kill this one, cancel this one, Uh, make the problem go away, make the confusion go away, make the uh, issue go away. Let's kill him. John 12, 48, we had 12 chapters, and John 12 culminates with a kind of summary explanation of Jesus' ministry with an invitation to us. It says, the one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings, will have this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus is saying, you can ignore what I'm saying for a time, but ultimately you're going to have to deal with who I am. And better sooner than later. That's where John chapter 12 takes us. Uh, You know, we say, well, Jesus isn't going to judge me. Well, Jesus says, I'm not going to judge you. But what he means is I'm not going to judge you right now. I've come to save you right now. I've come to help you make critical preparations for what's going to happen, not just in my life, but in your life. And my words are what (laughs) are going to judge you at the end. I'm here now to save you. That's the end of John chapter 
John chapter 12. Now, what are you going to do with Jesus? Here we are at the start of a new year. What are you going to do with Jesus? Because this is a you question. You have to wrestle with this first for yourself before anyone else. You worry about it for anyone else. What are you going to do with Jesus? Do you know him? Uh, Have you weighed his claims, the magnitude of his claims? Uh, This morning we're picking up right where we left off. We ended at John 12, and we're going to be at John 13. The last seven chapters of John deal with just the few remaining days of Jesus' earthly life. (laughs) The first 12 cover three whatever years. The last seven chapters just cover a few days. Now, if you knew that you only had a short time left, what would become of urgent necessity to you? Jesus, in his final days, has some of the most intimate moments with his disciples. He shares some of his most profound reflections of his whole life in these final days. And John devotes an overwhelming share of attention just on these few days, everything that was happening, every, all the conclusions, all the things that Jesus was tying together, trying to cement, he's leaving. I've got to cement these things in these 12 minds before I depart. All of that's happening in the last seven chapters of John, which is why we call it Deeper Still. My head's spinning from the first 12 chapters, from all the stuff I just summarized. My head's spinning. I I didn't even give you a fraction of it. But then there's deeper still. There's more. These last seven chapters are some of the deepest, most profound Christology found in all of the scriptures. Some of the deepest, most profound insights and important things of Jesus. And we're going to walk through them uh, in the limited way that we can with our finite minds. But we're going to walk through them between now and Easter. Now... I turn to John chapter 13, and it's one of these passages that we've heard a million times or we've heard a lot about. It gets a lot of attention. And I'm always a little bit careful when I come to a passage like that because I, I don't want to just go dig up the last sermon I preached on a passage like this. I want to sit and I want to hear it freshly anew. And there are some things that immediately jumped out at me in John chapter 13. I have this fantasy. That when we go to a place like John 13, everybody opens their Bibles and you hear the fluttering of pages and, and you're looking at the text itself or you're pulling out your app and fumbling around and getting it up. Could you do that? John 13. Just look at the text and let it just hit you. John 13, 1. There's several things here. Jesus knew where he was going. Verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. It's amazing how many people uh, have a sense when their time is drawing near. Uh, Pastorally speaking, it's an amazing thing. Jesus knew that his time was drawing near. Jesus knew that he was going back to the Father. This isn't new information in John for 12 chapters. Jesus has been saying this all along. You will see heaven open up Angels of God ascending and descending on me. It's happening. It's going to come. You're going to see it. I'm not speaking nor acting on my own. I'm here for only a short time. 
And then I'm going to go back to the one who sent me. And when I go back, you'll look for me, but you'll not be able to find me because you cannot come to where I'm going to be. That's Jesus. He always knew where he was going. He had that sense of destiny. But secondly in this chapter, Jesus knew where he came from. Verse 13 brings both of these ideas together. That Jesus knew that he'd come from God, but he also knew that he was returning to God. Now this is amplified for our attention and for our consideration in this chapter. He knew that he'd come from God, again, for 12 chapters. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Everything's been created through him. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He came from the Father. The Word became flesh. He tabernacled amongst us, God amongst us, God with us, Emmanuel. We've observed the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one's ever seen God. But the Son who is himself God and has been at the Father's side is revealing him to us. He's revealing him to us. He came from God. He's returning to God. Jesus had an unshakable sense of identity. And the twin pillars of that identity was he knew where he came from and where he was going. Now, none of us would probably say that we came directly from heaven. At least last I checked. I haven't heard anybody say that. None of us would say we're God incarnate. But we did come from God, right? That's also part of our identity. He is our creator, right? He did fashion us from dust. He did breathe into us the breath of life. God gave us consciousness, language, sight, senses, rationality. He gave us all these amazing capacities, created us in his image even, gave us our heart, our mind, our body, our souls. He created us so that he could enjoy us and relate to us fully. We know where we've come from. Now, the other thing is, is we have a sense of where we're going to go to, don't we? One day, we will return to God. One day soon, sooner than you realize, you will return to God. You will stand before God. The Bible says that God will resurrect the righteous and the unrighteous. And some will be raised to judgment, and some will be raised to life. Now, the loudmouths of our day spew worldly wisdom as if it's pure and holy spiritual wisdom. They just spew their thoughts about all things. They wax eloquent. And they think those who have a spiritual perspective anchored in Christ's words are fools. Uh, our wisdom is foolishness to the world and, and the loudest voices in our world spew the world's wisdom. Uh, the loudest mouths of our day call evil good and good evil. And they use all the tools of technology to do it as seductively as possible and as loudly as possible. Uh, the loudmouths of our day appraise evil as if it's some virtue, something life-giving and good. They justify their own greed. They justify their own abuses of power. 
they justify their form of exploitation of humans. They justify their style of acts of injustice. They're not content to merely be sexually immoral and to exercise and flaunt their freedom against God. The loudest voices of our day have set about corrupting your children, corrupting the next generation. The loudest, most proud, arrogant voices have set themselves against God and are content to corrupt not just in their own life but in everyone else. The God-given gifts of things, whether it's gender or sexuality or the reproductive capacities of an individual, whether it's their potential to have a family and marriage and all these good things, these things that God has given, they find it incumbent to corrupt and destroy those good gifts. The loudest voices of our day consider their own homicidal impulses to kill, destroy, abort, euthanize some kind of a good and moral right, even an environmental necessity. The world itself needs the death of humans. I was reading about these Canadian doctors. One has assisted 400 people to their death. And another has assisted over 300 people to their death. And some of the stories are things like uh, a man who is working and fears that he might lose his job and the anxiety of maybe being homeless one day was so overwhelming, they assisted him to his death. These doctors declare that it's been the proudest moment of their life to see 400 and 300 people to their death. On the last day, these loudmouths who reject Christ and those of us who look to them for wisdom will lay frozen as dead men in abject terror, in utter silence as God's word judges. The wicked will find no excuse, no justification great enough that will help them withstand that dark and dreadful day of God's judgment, your wisdom will be proved and shown for the foolishness that it is. When you know that you've come from a holy God and you know where you're going, you're going back to that God in one form or another, it changes everything about this life. How many of you are living in light of where you truly came from or where you're truly going? How many of you, those twin pillars, have given you a sense of not just identity, but responsibility with what you do with your life and how you spend your life. If if we don't tell our generation where they came from and where they are going, how will they be prepared for what awaits? For 12 chapters, Jesus has driven this again and again into our minds to the point, again, John 12, 48, the one who rejects me doesn't just who doesn't receive my saints, has this as his judge. The word I've spoken will judge him on the last days. If you loved somebody, if you cared about somebody, if you have any sense of empathy for this generation, you better get on the same page about where you've come from and where you're going and what needs to happen and and what love demands of, of us right now, not just for ourselves but for each other. This is what John chapter 12, that's where it's brought us. Jesus 
knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. Now, there's something else that Jesus knows in this chapter. He knows what's in a man, what's in a woman. I'm not trying to be gender exclusive. Uh, he knows what's in a person. He knows our wiring. He knows our sin. He knows our hearts. He knows our rebellion. He knows what's in us. He knows what we need. And so a way we can think of this is Jesus knew what he needed to leave in light of that. And as a matter of priority, Jesus leaves a legacy of love. Now, we have to define love for a moment. John 13 is the kind of love chapter, kind of like 1 Corinthians 13 or, or other passages, right? John 13, 1, the first verse in this chapter uh, is a key verse. Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus is going to love them right up to the very end. In fact, he's going to dial it in and dial it up for these final seven chapters in a very profound way. We're, we're getting there. He loved them right to the very end. John 13, 3, Jesus knew what the Father, that the Father had given him everything in his hands. He's talking about people. God's entrusted these lives to me. Uh, and he knew his responsibility to his fellow man. That's what's being taught here. But then this bizarre thing happens in John 13. And, and there's so much detail given. And not just detail, but kind of like staccato uh, punctuated detail. You know, sometimes uh, I have family members, they tell me stuff, and it's like, TMI, too much information. I don't, I don't need all this. I don't need to hear all the pieces there. Like, just give me the headline here, okay? All right, you wash someone's feet, cool. That's not what happens. You have all this detail. Jesus got up from supper. He laid aside his outer garment. He took a towel. He tied it, bound it around his waist. Next, he poured water into a basin. And he began washing his disciples' feet and drying them with the towel that was tied around him. What does this have to do with anything that we've been talking about for 12 chapters? It's like a detour almost. Verse 12, John 13. He does this and there's some conversation. We're going to get into some more of this next week. But verse 12, when Jesus had washed their feet, he put on his outer clothing. He reclined again at the table and he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? Do you know what I've done for you? Now, that's an interesting question. I was talking to my father-in-law yesterday, and I'd written a sermon and worked on it a couple different times. And, uh, you know, the, the tech team's been very gracious to me because they've had three versions of the sermon. But anyway, I was talking to him, and I was like, I feel like I'm missing something. I feel like I'm on the edge of something in this text, and it's driving me crazy. You ever have that when you're reading a, a passage? Imagine if you have to preach it. You know, you got you to get there. But John 12 concludes with this ominous warning about judgment and taking Jesus' words seriously. And, and Jesus says, my word is going to judge you on the last day. In John 13, it can't be more explicit. Jesus knew he was returning to the Father, and he knew that he'd come from the Father. How do you take these different pieces and fit them together in any kind of like logical, coherent way? I know I'm from the Father. I know I'm going back to the Father. Let me wash your feet. <laughs> you know, uh, what do you do with these pieces? They're kind of odd. How do you fit them together? Uh, do you know and understand what I've done for you? 
uh, Jesus, you wash my feet. My toes are zestfully clean. Gee, thank you, God, you're so nice. And I need to be nice like that. Oh, you want me to love others just as you love me. Let's break out basins of water and wash each other's feet. It'll be fun. You know, I can think of far more grittier tasks than washing someone's feet. Follow any one of our many nurses around on their rounds at the hospital for an hour, much less a day. Hang out with any mother, you know, uh, for a day. You'll be begging to only have to wash feet. This is not the grittiest, most difficult, hard thing that Jesus could have come up with. I don't think I've ever washed another person's feet. I'm trying to think. You know, when I graduated from seminary, uh, Paul Boatman uh, was the seminary dean, and he gave me a towel symbolizing that in ministry you wash people's feet. I still have that towel, and it's never been soiled. It's never been used. But it sure looks pretty in my office if you want to come see it. It's kind of weird when people, even in the name of Jesus, try to wash each other's feet. I've always felt that way. Is that what this text is really about? Yes, but is there more here to consider? Don mentioned, my father-in-law mentioned something he'd read by the late John Stott. And what John Stott sees in this foot washing is the gospel in microcosm. There are these things that are done that are given to us, like baptism, for example. I know you know, you've heard everything you need to hear about baptism and you feel like it's, we make a bigger deal about it than we should, except you die and you're buried and you're raised to new life. It is a microcosm, a picture of the gospel. I wouldn't dismiss it so lightly if I were you. The Lord's Supper, the broken bread, uh, the, the, the emblem, the, the cup, the, the juice that symbolizes the blood, uh, you know, the Christian church, we do it every week. I think that's too much. We got to do it once a month or, or maybe once a No. I wouldn't dismiss it so quickly. It's a microcosm, a picture of the gospel of what God did for us. He shed his blood. He broke his body. And we should think about that very regularly. The early church did it every day. But here's foot washing. And what do we do with foot washing? And how does that fit into anything that matters? So let's just review Jesus got up, laid aside his outer garment, took a towel, bound himself with it, poured water out, washed and cleansed men of their uncleanliness. Jesus knew that he came from the Father. Why? How did that scenario unfold? It's interesting over in Philippians 2 that the Apostle Paul seems to connect the dots in a way that we may not. Jesus knew he came from the Father. Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus existing in the form God, being God himself, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be exploited, which is what we do with power and every other thing, right? Instead, Jesus stood up in the hour of man's need, in the presence of the Father. Jesus stood up and he said, here I am, send me. And he emptied himself of the glory that he had from all eternity. He set aside that garment of glory. He assumed the form, the posture of a servant. 
And as a man, he humbled himself. He bound himself unto death, even becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Even pouring out his own flesh and blood to cleanse men of their sin. That the wrath of God not remain on them forever. Here you have a picture of Jesus being sent for a purpose that we can't ignore or defer any longer. Jesus, you washed my very soul. My soul is made perfectly holy and righteous through the cleansing blood of your son, Jesus Christ. God, you've loved me and you've loved me fully and the extent of that love is that you spared no measure in that love. Jesus knew where he came from. Jesus knew where he was going after he washes their feet. Having humbled himself, having bound himself in death, bound himself in this self-giving love, Jesus stood back up in resurrection. He was clothed with everlasting glory. He was clothed on high. God highly exalted him, Paul says, and gave him a name that is above every name, uh, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Do you understand what I've done for you? You washed my feet is a pretty superficial understanding of the scope of what Jesus has done for us, isn't it? He came from the Father to cleanse us, to wash us. He came from the Father to save our very soul. He came from the Father that our knee might bow and our tongue confess God as Lord of the earth, as Lord of our life. You call me teacher and Lord, great. You're speaking rightly since that's what I am, that's who I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant's not greater than his master. A messenger's not greater than the one who sent him. Jesus isn't greater than the Father. He's not, you know. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. John 13, 34 and 35, towards the end of the chapter. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also ought to love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Love how? Break out a basin of water, wash each other's feet. I'll tell you what. I will do a mass foot washing this afternoon at my house. I will set up the pressure washer, and I will make sure your feet are cleaner. Love how? Is this a metaphor or is this a literal thing, wash each other's feet? Uh, John Stott says of John 13... We have the gospel in microcosm. He says, this passage is about the mission he undertook in leaving heaven because of our need. It's about the mission he accomplished for us in coming to wash us in water and blood. It's about the mission, though, also that he's entrusted to us, which is to love. Yes, if it means temporally. In Philippians 2, when Paul talks about this, he says... Each of you should look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. 
if somebody needs their feet washed, praise the Lord it's, that that's all they need. <laughs> because we're going to be dealing with Peter and Judas next week, and they needed something more than just a, a foot washing, right? There's some serious spiritual reformation needed, renovation needed in their lives. Those were some very difficult dudes. But if someone needs their foot washed, you know, that's what we do. We look not to our own interest. But Paul says something else in Philippians too. He says that we need to like love in light of eternity, love in light of a person's ultimate destiny, where they're going. If people are gonna stand before God one day and the wrath of God remaining on a person is a real issue and a real matter that a person should be concerned about, and we have the means to alleviate that problem by sharing the gospel of Jesus and asking people to judge themselves today by Christ's word instead of deferring it to the end of the age when you can't do nothing about it. If we have the opportunity to help people prepare for eternity, Paul says, I am pouring out my life like Jesus. I'm pouring out my life like a kind of drink offering. I'm filling up in my own flesh what is lacking in regards to the sufferings of Christ. Not that I'm suffering for the sins of the world, but I am suffering to make sure that people hear the gospel. I am suffering for mission. How would love play itself out for us as God's people is the real meaning of this text and not just in a temporal way or a superficial way like having zestfully clean toes but an eternal sort of way as well that we would deal with our problem of sin and bend our knee and confess Jesus as savior of our very souls how might that necessity, that urgency of that shape what we do every day. We don't know how long we have. You don't know how long you have. You don't know how long your family members have. We are a mist that appears a flash, just a blink. And Jesus would have us deal with his words today and receive him as the Lord of our life and others as well. If we don't tell this generation where they've come from and where they're going and help them prepare or do it ourselves. Can we really say we've loved as Jesus loved? Let's pray. Dear Father, help us to love as Christ loved. Help us to love, yes, responsive to each other's needs in every way, seeking the deepest good of each other. But let us love with the eternal good in mind, of eternal life, of life everlasting. Those who trust Jesus have passed from death to life. And your word no longer stands against them, but bolsters them by virtue of Christ's blood, by virtue of his sacrifice and righteousness. May we trust you and help others trust you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.